Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. <clears throat> AT&T connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? You know, I recently started buying DVDs and Blu-rays and vinyl records again, partly because I'm tired of titles disappearing from various streaming platforms. You know, you you count on something being there and then you log into your account and realize, hey, that thing I wanted to experience isn't on this service anymore. So that's part of the reason. Another part is because I actually have this tiny little house in the middle of nowhere that has like no connectivity. And so I wanted to get some media that doesn't require an internet connection because I can only watch the lizards and squirrels for so long before I start criticizing their lack of narrative. They do not take direction well. Anyway, I thought it might be fun to talk about some older forms of media that have passed out of favor or even gone completely obsolete. 
And this is more than just an episode where we look back and make goofy jokes about old forms of media. Uh, I've talked before about how data preservation is a real challenge. And, and this is part of it. There are a lot of different challenges associated with the preservation of information. Sometimes we commit data, whether that's computer code or it's an audio recording or video or digital documents or anything else, and we commit it to a medium that subsequently loses support. And at that point, the information that's stored on this old format is on borrowed time. We need to either port that information over to another format, one that at least has support today, or we have to resign ourselves to eventually losing those older copies. Now, in some cases, like popular TV shows or movies or albums, we might not need to worry too much about the whole thing disappearing, but we might lose certain instances of that thing. For example, uh, let's say that you were, you bought an early DVD and uh, it had an amazing commentary track on it, and you really thought it was entertaining, and you've since lost it. And now when you start searching for a DVD of this same thing, all the current ones don't have that commentary track. That's one example of the sort of stuff you can lose, uh, even with things that continue to have at least some support in, in current media. So this is a tricky thing. And let me give you an example of just lost media entirely. Uh, there's a popular television series called Doctor Who. And this is an English TV series. If you're not familiar with it, it's been on forever since 1963, actually, though not consistently since 1963. And it was broadcast by the BBC, which is effectively a state-backed broadcast network in the UK. And at the time, the BBC's normal method of operation was to broadcast content. And if they started to run low on reel-to-reel tapes where they would store this stuff, they would just wipe older programs in order to put something else on that tape. So instead of buying new tape and figuring out where to store it and all that kind of stuff, they just say, hey, let's just erase this old thing. No, who's who's going to care? Because... I mean, that was the thought was it wasn't preservation. It was just it was transmission of entertainment. And then you moved on. No one was really thinking ahead to, uh, you know, documenting this stuff and keeping it in a library and then further down the line, opening it up for home consumption. That just wasn't even remotely in the cards when people were thinking about this. In fact, I want to say that Eric Idle of Monty Python argued with the BBC and made certain that he got possession of the tapes after they produced the TV show so that the original Monty Python broadcasts would not subsequently get wiped because other shows had met that fate. So as a result, several of the early seasons of Doctor Who have missing episodes or entire missing seasons. And now and again, you'll hear of someone happening across an old copy of a previously lost episode. And that's a big deal. And because all forms of storage media have a limited lifespan, as time passes, the chances of finding a good copy of a previously missing episode decrease because the actual material that the, the broadcast is saved upon will deteriorate over time. So yeah, data preservation is an important thing 
for us to preserve things like like work of cultural significance, art, uh, information, you know, being able to document changes in public perception, even like these are all important things. And they're made more difficult by the fact that we have these various forms of media that can go obsolete over time. Now, in the case of the BBC, the media isn't missing because we no longer support the format, right? Reel-to-reel tape is still something that we have, you know, working equipment that can, that can actually access that. But, you know, it is likely that you can grasp that when formats evolve, we can end up leaving data on previous formats behind. And again, as someone who is back to buying optical discs for television and movies and vinyl records for my albums, I frequently encountered the problem of looking for specific titles only to find out that the version I want is out of publication or that the edition I wanted has long been unavailable and anything that I can find on the market today is not exactly what I was looking for. So let's get a look at some formats that either no longer exist or they have such limited support that they might as well be obsolete. One type of recording that was very nearly lost for good was the phonautograph. So this is the, in fact, one of the earliest and possibly the earliest example of recording an audio signal uh, to a different medium. So a French inventor named Edouard Leon Scott built the phonograph way back in 1857. This predates Edison and the phonograph. And as the name suggests, this device was meant to, quote-unquote, write down sound. Uh, as I said, this is the earliest version of recorded sound that we have, not for reproducing sound or programming sound. We'll touch on that as well in this episode, uh, because there were ways where you could program sound for a device, like uh, an organ, for example. But you couldn't just record audio and play it back. Uh, now, Scott, unlike Edison, he wasn't concerned with playing audio back. That wasn't what he was thinking of at all. So his methodology wasn't meant to allow playback. His plan was to use the phonograph to record audio for study with the perhaps ultimate goal of creating a speech-to-text methodology. That is, you could use the phonograph to record speech, and then by studying the record, the, the thing that was produced by the phonograph, then another person who was skilled in the art would be able to recreate what was said, or to you know reproduce what was said, or, or read what had been said. So the record left behind would be distinct enough to know what words had been spoken, but it would take a lot of study to learn which phonemes produce particular shapes. And as it turned out, it's way more complicated than what Scott was thinking, but it was an interesting line of thought. So by shapes, I'm talking about patterns drawn on smoke blackened glass or paper. So let's say you get a pane of glass. It's, it's coated with lamp black. So there's this thin black coating on the surface of the glass. And the stylus that they would use was actually some bristles. And those bristles connected to a diaphragm that itself was at the narrow end of an acoustic trumpet. Not the musical instrument trumpet, but the trumpet shape. So you have the big open side. And then on the narrow side, you've got this little thin sensitive diaphragm 
connected to that are these bristles that can just barely make contact with the lamp-blacked surface of this piece of glass. This acoustic trumpet would mimic the human ear. So if you look at a human ear, you're like, oh, I see. The ear is the opening of the trumpet. The canal is this narrowing tube. The eardrum is the same as this little diaphragm. So in sound waves would enter the acoustic end of this trumpet, the open end of this trumpet, I should say, and then travel down the, the narrow pathway. It would cause the diaphragm to vibrate. The glass would move across the bristles at a regular speed, uh, at an unbroken regular speed. And the bristles would vibrate with the vibration of the diaphragm, which came from the speaking. So the idea was that because the the time was was constant, the travel time for the glass was constant, you could look at the wiggly line created by these bristles, and that would represent the sound that entered into the trumpet. And theoretically, if you were able to really study this, you should be able to tell what someone said based solely upon that squiggly line traced in the lamp black on the glass. And, you know, that was a really interesting idea. Uh, Scott's work wasn't fully successful. Like, he, he was able to create the device, and the device worked, but figuring out what was said based upon what was recorded turned out to be way harder than what he expected. It was just much more difficult to really suss all that out. And Scott's work plunged into obscurity for many years and was in danger of just being forgotten entirely. And then the narrative would just be, Edison is the father of recorded sound. Now, in 2008, a project called First Sounds found phonautograms, these recordings that were made from Scott's invention. And through the use of digital scanning, and some clever programming, they were able to recreate the sound that was originally recorded. Since the phonautogram could only record in two dimensions, the amount of information it captured was somewhat limited, but they could actually create a simulated playback of this recorded sound. Elements of the phonautograph would actually make their way into devices like the gramophone, and this would aim to record audio for the purposes of playback rather than scientific study. So this was taking Scott's idea, but then expanding it specifically for the purposes of playback. So the gramophone and then Edison's phonograph technology would create the foundation for what would ultimately evolve into vinyl records much further into the future. So while the phonograph itself is obsolete, its influence lives on today for those of us who still have a soft spot for turntables and LPs. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll talk about another super cool but obsolete form of media. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. 
Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Okay, we're back and I want to talk about organets. This one's a little tricky because tracing the history of organets can take you down a very long rabbit hole. Uh, First, let's start off with what an organet actually is. So it is a device that plays back music, uh, instrumental music. And specifically, it's a reed instrument that will play back music. Uh, And you can't just play any tune on it. It's not like a keyboard that blows air through reeds or anything like that. Instead, you would program music using a perforated surface, very much like a player piano, right? So it might be a long strip of paper that has perforated holes at specific points that represent specific notes and the duration of those notes. Or it might be uh, strips of cardboard, which was also very common, Or it could even be metal discs that have perforations in them. So air can flow through those perforations and thus ultimately allow reeds to play, either by blowing directly across the reeds or or allowing a valve to open and do that. But there's a lot more going on than just that. If we were to trace the history of pipe and reed organs, which predate organets, uh, That history takes us really far back. Um, In fact, it takes us all the way back to ancient Greece with a musical device called the hydraulis. And this was essentially an organ that used uh, air pressure and water pressure to play notes through pipes. So the organ had different pipes that were built to tune to specific notes. And if you were to force air through this pipe, it would produce the note it had been tuned to. And you would have keys that you could press down. And if you press on a key, it would essentially allow 
a valve to open for that specific pipe and air would then be able to pass through. But where did the air come from, right? Yes, if you press the key, it opens up this air path and that would allow a note to play for air to force through the pipe. But the air has to come from somewhere. Well, the air came courtesy of a chamber that was partly filled with water. And a bellows-like pump would force air into this chamber. So the air would actually start to push the water down and the water would have this regular pressure on the air inside. A valve would stop the air from just flowing right back out toward where the bellows were, uh, where the pump was. And when you press down a key, it would allow the air an escape route. So it would go out and go through the pipe. And by continuing to pump the bellows, you would continue to maintain pressure inside this chamber that also had water in it so that you could continue to play the instrument. And this thing is thousands of years old. It was before Common Era when this was invented. It's it's incredibly ingenious. I would love to do a full episode about um, pipe organs and reed organs and their history because it is really fascinating. It's also a little complicated to talk about without the use of visual aids. So it, it's a daunting principle. But anyway, this basic idea would evolve over time and we would get pipe and reed organs that you might be more familiar with. In fact, once upon a time, I actually owned uh, some bellows organs, some pump organs, uh, where uh, I could move the the foot pedals to pump air into the organ and then play um, musical notes. And you had to keep on pumping if you wanted to maintain that pressure to be able to do that. It was really neat. So then we get to devices similar to the organettes that would take advantage of this air pressure idea, but they would remove the human player from the experience. Uh, one of these, a predecessor to the organette, was the barrel organ or roller organ. So with a barrel organ, you have a pump or bellows that provides air power. You have musical notes that get produced through pipes or reeds. But instead of a keyboard, the valves for these pipes connect to little levers. And you program music on a cob or barrel. So this is a cylinder and has various little projections on it, like a little spike or sometimes kind of staples. Similar to what you might see with a music box. If you've ever looked into a music box and seen the little barrel turning that has the little uh, projections on it. So these little protrusions would come into contact with these levers connected to the valves. And when they would, it would make the valve open, which would allow air to escape the, the chamber of the instrument through a reed or pipe, and a note would play. So as the cylinder rotates, it hits these levers to produce pre-programmed music. The quality of the music depends largely on the quality of the pre-programmed barrel. If you did a poor job placing the pins and staples on the barrel, then the song's just not going to sound right. The staples, by the way, would hold a valve open longer than just one of the little projections would. So if you needed a sustained note, you would use these staples to do that. Now, if you've ever encountered an organ grinder, like a person who plays one of these on the street, or you've seen one in movies or whatnot, you have seen a version of the barrel organ. They are typically cranked by hand, and the hand crank powers both the bellows and the rotation of the barrel itself. And again, I would need to do a full episode to talk about the 
technology behind this, the various gears that uh, allow this to happen, because it's really fascinating stuff. But let's finally get to organets. So rather than using a barrel with these little projections or a cob, like the organ grinder and barrel organ devices, they would use perforated material through which air could flow freely. Some organets depended upon forcing air through the holes, like blowing air through the holes, in order to engage with reeds and play a note. Others would create a vacuum, so they would pull air through the holes and essentially do the same. It's really not that different from how a harmonica works. Like if you've ever played a harmonica, you know that if you blow air, you will make the reeds vibrate and get a certain sound. If you suck air in, the reeds will vibrate and you'll get a slightly different sound. So anyway, the solid bits of material, like the, the solid bits of, of the paper or the disc, block airflow, right? Air cannot flow through solid paper or solid metal. So in those cases, like no note plays because it has it can't go through the, the material. A hole allows a note to play out. Now, most organets had between 14 and 40, or really more frequently, 39 reeds. So your media would have to match the instrument to play properly, right? If your player only had 14 reeds and you had a, a paper roll designed for a 39 reed device, it won't work because you can't line things up properly. And you have to line up the holes just right or else the wrong notes are going to play or you're going to destroy the recording. Now, uh, or the program, I should say. It's not even a recording, it's a program. One version of the organet used metal discs, which were not dissimilar to record albums, except these had holes punched in them as opposed to grooves cut into them. And you would align them properly on the organet, you would turn a crank and this would turn the disc and wind would go through it and through to the reeds and you would play the pre-programmed music. And it's pretty impressive stuff. There are videos on YouTube where you can watch people demonstrating how organets work, including these metal disc versions. And some of them sound really nice, like they're tuned really nicely and they're producing nice notes. Uh, but the rise of the phonograph would reduce organets to curiosities. And while they are highly sought after today by collectors, at the time when phonographs were starting to rise in popularity, most folks were just putting their organets away and not thinking about them anymore. These days, I could arguably talk about film being a nearly obsolete medium, almost completely replaced by video. But that seems particularly harsh, and it's not completely true. I mean, there are still filmmakers who are using actual film in their in their projects. Photographic and cinematic film has been around for more than a century. Basically, it all has to do with a strip of plastic film coated in photoreactive chemicals. When these are exposed to light, the chemicals on the film react. And if you were to put such a film in a device that can direct light to the film using a lens and a shutter to control when the light can come through and when it can't, you can make yourself a fancy schmancy film camera and capture images. It'll capture whatever the light captured when it was entering the lens and hit the film at that point. You have to develop the film, create a negative image, and then transfer that over to new film to get your you know, positive image. But then you've got your cinematic masterpiece. Now, here in the States, film enthusiasts became familiar with 8mm, 16mm, and Super 8 formats. So the millimeter refers to essentially the width 
of the film, the strip of film. So an eight millimeter film is shot on a strip of film that's approximately eight millimeters wide. Now it could be really, really long, but it's eight millimeters wide. Super eight is also eight millimeters wide, but it allows the image to take up a little bit more of the space on the that film, a little more of the width of the film. And you might wonder, well, how is that even possible? Well, it has to do with the way that film gets pulled through a camera or a projector. See, film has these little perforations and eight millimeter has these perforations down one side of the film. And you, you get these little perforations hooked into a sprocket in the camera or the projector and it engages the perforations. So when the sprocket begins to turn, it pulls the film along and you can either record with a camera or playback with a projector. Super 8 makes these perforations smaller than the older 8mm film did. That means you don't need as much space around the perforations. You can actually dedicate more of that space to the image itself and get a bigger image out of Super 8 than you would out of regular old 8mm film. Uh, anyway, while you can still find Super 8 film and the occasional place to develop it, which is getting harder to do all the time, there's another format that never really took off here in the United States, but it was popular in other parts of the world, and that's 9.5 millimeter film, which first emerged in the 1920s in Europe. So yeah, this film is a little bit wider than 8 millimeter, and it also used a different approach to those perforations. So instead of having the perforations to the side of the image, the way 8 millimeter does, the 9.5 millimeter film has perforations that are between the individual frames, the images themselves. So think of a film strip as really just a series of still photographs, one after the other. And when you play them back fast enough, you have the illusion of movement. Well, this means that between, say, photo one and photo two, right in the middle between the two, you have a perforation. And then below photo two and above photo three, you've got another perforation. So instead of to the side, it's above and below the images. Now, the benefit of that is you can dedicate even more of the width of your film to capturing an image. And the actual image area of 9.55 millimeters isn't that less, not that much less than what you would get with a 16 millimeter camera. So in ways, it was superior to 8 millimeter. Now, the 9.5 millimeter format technically still exists, but it caters to a pretty small group of hobbyists and enthusiasts. And in the world of film, you're looking at a, a world that's slowly dying or at least diminishing. And 9.5 millimeter occupies a special place in this overall community that's slowly becoming more and more obscure. The format means you need a special projector to play it back or else you risk damaging the film itself. Uh, and those center perforations really are what caused the problems there. Okay, we've got some more obsolete forms of media to talk about. But before we jump into all that, let's take another break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. 
Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. You know, when I was looking into different types of obsolete formats, I came across a couple I had never heard of before, and that's always fun for me. And one of the ones that I had never heard before, but it, you know, some of my listeners, y'all might have heard of it, especially if you come from or lived in Germany, is the Tefiphone. And that was developed in the mid-1930s, but really saw limited success on the market in Germany in the late 40s and into the 1950s. Uh, It gives me Large Nerdron Collider vibes. And if you don't know what Large Nerdron Collider is, it's a podcast that I co-host with my friend Ariel. And one of the things we do is we typically take two unrelated pop culture concepts and we mash them together to find out what they make, usually for comedic effect. The Teffy phone kind of mashes up two different media formats and creates something of its own. So it's kind of like a cross between a vinyl record and an eight track tape, which is another mostly obscure piece of technology we could talk about, but I've talked about in plenty of other episodes, so we won't cover it here. So the Teffy phone has uh, the capacity to play special cartridges. It's a cartridge playing media device. Now the cartridge itself contains a reel of plastic tape, and it's it's an uh, endless loop reel, meaning you don't have a, a point where the beginning of the reel attaches or the beginning of the tape attaches to the reel and the end of the tape attaches to the reel. Uh, it's kind of like a rubber band. It's it's a, 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 a long loop. Uh, it does wrap around the reel several times, but it allows you to just play it all the way through. So this plastic tape does not store audio in magnetic form. That's what audio cassettes and A-tracks do. They have a plastic strip of tape that's coated with magnetic material or ferromagnetic material. 
that when you apply a magnetic field to it, you can record audio, right? That's not how these cartridges work. Instead, the plastic tape inside the Tefiphone cartridge has grooves in it, just like a vinyl record, right? So imagine that you lay out a long length of tape horizontally. Let's say that you got one of these cartridges and for some reason you decided to cut the tape out so that you just have one long strip that stretches out in front of you horizontally. You would see that there is a there is a series of grooves across that tape uh, on the horizontal plane so that if you were to put a stylus inside that groove, it would travel all the way down that length. And if you had not cut the tape, <laughs> you would see that at the far right end of the tape, it would then move down on the left end and the groove would continue because it spirals when it's a loop if you haven't cut the tape into one long strip. So this groove spirals across the entire length of this tape. And that means that you put a stylus into that groove and you push play and it travels down the groove just like a, a record player stylus would. And you can listen to audio that's been recorded in that, that format. And it'll play for as long as that tape lasts. Uh, the tape came in different lengths. You had some cartridges that could hold 15 minutes of audio, some that could hold an hour worth of audio, and the large ones could hold up to four hours of audio. So yeah, the, the player's stylus settles onto the tape. Uh, usually this is out of view. It's under a cover where you can't mess with stuff. Uh, though sometimes, depending on the model, you could see what was happening. And the stylus vibrates as it travels through the groove. Those vibrations cause a little electromagnet to produce a tiny electric charge, which, when amplified and sent to speakers, can play back the recorded sound. Now, as I said, the tape is a closed loop. If you were to listen to a recording from the beginning, or at least as close as you could get to the beginning, you would start with the stylus in the top position along the, the width of this tape. Remember, if we were to lay it out horizontally, we're looking at the the width of the tape and you would want it at the top of that width. And the stylus would settle into a groove and it would continue on until it got to the end. Once it got to the end, by the way, it would enter a closed circle of uh, tape where it would just play a chime over and over again rather than spiral. So like the stylus would never come off the groove. It would just enter into a repeating circle that would play a chime that would alert you that you've reached the end of the recording and that you need to turn off the player or reset it to a higher uh, part of the groove. You could adjust where the stylus was using a little control. The control would let you adjust the height of where the stylus was along uh, with respect to the tape. But you couldn't just choose a track to play because, again, it's recorded on this endless loop. You could get kind of close but you might hear like, oh, this is in the middle of the song I wanted to hear. So you would actually have to move the stylus up a notch and listen to the end of a previous bit of music before it would get to whatever it was you wanted to hear. It was not a super user-friendly approach to listening to music, but it was incredibly clever. And I had never seen this before. I didn't realize that there were these devices that could record grooves onto tape similar to what you would find with a record. So yeah, um, 
pretty fascinating Teffy phone. I, I, I would love to get my hands on one, although there's very limited media available for Teffy phone. One of the reasons why the Teffy phone ultimately failed. Um, most of the media is in German. Uh, there are a lot of covers of songs sung by German singers. Uh, so like famous songs coming out of America would be covered by Germans. So you would get a, a German speaking version of like Tutti Frutti, uh, that kind of stuff. But the reason why there wasn't that much content for the Teffy phone is that a lot of the established artists had signed exclusive deals with music record labels and they weren't allowed to record for any other form factors. So that never really took off. And uh, while you can still find old Teffy phone players and cassettes on like used markets and stuff, um, like I said, I never even encountered it before I did my research for this. And then as, as soon as I saw one, I thought, I really wish I had one of those. They look super neat. I would need so much extra equipment to be able to play them because <laughs> they have all the fittings for 1950s era German uh, outlets and German sound systems. And I don't have any of that. So it would be a heck of a lot of work to get one to a point where I could listen to it. But it's a fascinating variation of technology that I'm otherwise familiar with. Then let's talk really quickly about wire recorders. Because these were the predecessors to reel-to-reel -reel, uh, magnetic tape recorders. And then those, of course, are predecessors to cassette recorders. These wire recorders used stainless steel wire. And this idea originated out of the tail end of the 19th century. But it would actually take a few decades before enough improvements in technology made it a viable option. Um, it became a useful tool during World War II and uh, a, a, a consumer product that saw limited success. So the idea is pretty simple. You've got a magnetic head that generates a magnetic field in response to an electric current, which could be coming from, say, a microphone. You run this magnetic uh, wire or this steel wire past this magnetic head at a good clip. And the magnetic head magnetizes the steel wire point by point. This magnetic field is fluctuating both in polarity and in intensity. So the wire carries all that, right? As the wire passes by, the polarity and intensity determines how that part of the wire is magnetized. And so this variation in the magnetic field coupled with the speed of the wire passing below this, this right head uh, creates a, a record of those fluctuations. When you run the wire back across a similar head that can pick up these magnetic fluctuations that are now held by the wire itself, the process can reverse. It will generate an electric signal that is a duplicate of the original electric signal that made the recording in the first place. And you feed that signal to an amplifier and some speakers and viola, you got yourself a playback sound. So to imagine what one of these looks like, you can think of kind of like the old reel-to-reel -reel magnetic tape recorders, if you've seen one of those. So you've got a device that's got two spindles on it. And this is where you can put two reels onto these spindles, one reel per spindle. One of those reels is wound up with this magnetized wire that's got your recording on it. The other reel is empty. And you feed the free end of your magnetized wire 
through the wire playback machine. And then you secure that end to the empty reel that's on the opposite side of the, the machine. When you turn the machine on and you initiate playback, the empty spindle or the empty reel on the spindle begins to turn and pulls the wire through the machine. And the reed head picks up on the magnetic fluctuations in the wire and plays back the sound. So yeah, exact same principle as reel-to-reel tape machines, except it was using a steel wire rather than plastic tape coated with magnetic material on it. Tape recorders were in development by the time the wire recorder tech was good enough to actually put on the market. And once tape recorders became affordable, then the industry pretty much dumped wire recorders and switched strictly to tape. The use of wire recorders still was something that some places would rely on, but it did fade over time, essentially becoming a curiosity by the late 1960s. Speaking of magnetic tape, let's talk about a couple of video cassette formats that predated both Betamax and VHS. This is where we'll wrap up for this episode. Uh, now, before VHS and Betamax would wage format wars with each other, which was a big thing in the 70s and into the early 80s, we had other formats. We had the U-Matic cassette, which came from Sony. The company had been working on the technology in the late 1960s and was ready to debut it in the 1970s. And this was one of the first cassette formats for videotape. So before the video cassette, the go-to was the reel-to-reel tapes, which worked on a very similar principle to the wire recorders I just talked about. You would attach a reel of tape to one spindle on a player, feed the tape through the device, connect that end of the tape to the empty reel on the other side. The empty reel would rotate when you started to record or play back, and the tape would be pulled past the read-write head. So same thing as the wire recorder, just using tape instead of wire. But reels meant that the tape was a little bit vulnerable to the environment. Plus, it was possible for the tape to unspool off the reel. Like if you held it the wrong way, you might start like dropping tape everywhere. And that was a heck of a mess to fix. Um, and the idea behind the cassette was that the tape would be protected by the cassette's body. It would be unable to come unspooled under normal circumstances anyway. And it was protected from dust and other stuff. And it could be stored really easily and organized really easily, much easier than reel-to-reel tape would. It took up less space. It was easy to find. So it had a lot of pros going for it. Now, the U-Matic was mostly used in broadcast stations. It was originally intended to be a consumer product. It just didn't quite make it, but it did make it within the TV industry. Uh, the cassettes came in two different sizes, but the full size measured 8 and 5 eighths inches, by five and three eighths inches by one and a half inches. And that made them larger than VHS and beta cassettes that would come out later on. So these were big cassettes. They were kind of bulky. The machines that you needed to play them on were also big and heavy and bulky. And uh, the U-Matic was called the U-Matic because if you could look through a machine while a cassette was being played, you would see that the tape inside the cassette was being pulled out and moved through a U-shape as it passed over the video head device. Also, oddly enough, unlike every other cassette that I'm aware of, 
the reels would turn in opposite directions. Like if you look at an old audio cassette, if reel on the left is turning counterclockwise, the reel on the right is also turning counterclockwise. Not so much with the U-Matics. If the reel on the left is turning counterclockwise, the reel on the right is turning clockwise. This is because of how the tape was fed through the cassette and looped around the video head. But, but yeah, the first time I saw that in action, I thought, how the heck is this working? Because you would think it would reach a point where it's like a tug of war. But no, it's because of the way the tape is fed through. Anyway, Sony reportedly wanted the U-Matic to be a consumer product, like I said, but the cost of manufacturing was so high that the sales price of the machines was just prohibitively expensive for the average consumer. But the broadcast industry adopted U-Matic as a relatively inexpensive upgrade from reel-to-reel tapes. And it would let them store these cassettes much more easily, and that was great for broadcast TV, where you might need to go back into the archives and pull something so that you can reference it in, say, a new broadcast. So it really saw a lot of use in television stations, even though it didn't really ever emerge in the consumer market. Uh, ultimately, even TV stations moved away from U-Matic over time, though there's still a lot of stations, I'm told, that have a U-Matic player and still have U-Matic tapes just in the off chance that they ever need to play archived footage uh, and they just haven't transferred that over to a newer medium. So that's interesting. And finally, the other video cassette kind of precursor I want to talk about is a format, again, that came out three years, I think, before VHS and beta, or really beta, because VHS came later. And I'm talking about the Kartra Vision system. A guy called Frank Stanton created the Cartridge Television Incorporated company that produced the Kartra Vision. Cartridge Television Incorporated was a subsidiary to a subsidiary. To, it gets down a crazy rabbit hole. <laughs> I tried to track it down and ultimately I said, you know what? This doesn't matter as far as the actual format concerned. So I abandoned it. But apparently it was part of like a, a aerospace company at some point, which in itself was part of a, a former textile company. <laughs> it just got crazy. Anyway, the idea behind Cartravision was to create a system that included both a television and a cartridge-based playing system with cartridges containing content like movies and shows but also recordability. Like you could get a blank cartridge and record TV programs to your blank cartridge so you can watch them back later. All the basic function of later VCRs. So you might wonder, why did the Cartravision disappear when later formats like Beta and VHS managed to succeed? Well, there are a few reasons. A big one was that because this was a combination television and player, uh, was that this was a big, bulky, and expensive piece of technology. Uh, depending upon what source you look at, the cost was anywhere between $1,300 and $1,600 bucks way back in 1972. So that puts it somewhere between $9,500 and $11,350 bucks today. That's wicked pricey for a little bit of consumer home technology. But the concept for Cartravision foresaw some interesting stuff like movie rentals. Cartridge Television was renting out movies to customers. They came in special red cartridges. Most cartridges were black with like a label on them that reflected whatever the content was. The rental ones were red, red plastic cartridges. 
And they would send these cartridges via UPS to customers. And then the customers would be able to watch the movie and they were supposed to send it back via UPS. And interestingly, these rental cartridges were rigged to only play once for a customer. So there'd be no reason for you to keep your rental, right? Because you could only watch it once. You could not get any more use of it. So you might as well send it back. That was the thinking. And the way it worked was these cartridges had essentially what amounted to a braking system, like like pumping the brakes on a car that would prevent customers from being able to rewind the cartridge. It would not rewind in a consumer uh, cartivision system. So you'd be able to watch through the rental one time, but you couldn't rewind it to watch it again. So you would have to send the cartridge back and then the Cartridge Television Incorporated had devices that could actually rewind the rented cartridges and then send them back out to the next rental customer. But the rental system wasn't convenient. Folks were not crazy about the idea of not being able to watch something more than once or even be able to rewind a cartridge briefly in case they missed something while they were watching a film. So that was another strike against the format. But a truly huge problem was that the initial batch of cartridges went bad. They had been stored in warehouses that had poor environmental controls. And apparently as a result of humidity, there was massive problems with uh, the tape degrading inside the cartridges, which effectively rotted out the cartridges. They were useless. They could even, you know, jam up a working system so there was a recall on all those cartridges. And that meant that now you had this playback device that had no content you could play back on it. And by the time the company was trying to get things back in the right direction, it was already too late. The marketplace was unforgiving. Wall Street downgraded the company severely. The whole project folded. Uh, only a couple thousand units were reportedly sold in the first place. Collectors still seek out systems and cartridges to this day, but it is definitely an obsolete format. It did not stand the test of time like VHS, which of course is also obsolete at this point, but you know, it, it at least had a longer moment in the spotlight than cartridge uh, television managed with their cartivision or cartravision. All right. That's enough for this episode. There's obviously lots of other examples. Uh, my beloved CED is a great one. I have one sitting right next to me, and that's an obsolete <laughs> format, if ever there was one. But I've talked about it before. I'll probably talk about it again. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's you know, obsolete media or something entirely different, let me know. One way to do that is to download the iHeartRadio app, it's free to download and use. You can navigate over to Tech Stuff. Click on that little icon that has the microphone on it. You can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length for me, or you can drop me a message on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.